welcome to the Swamp Flakes Podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. I am Allie. And I am Boomer. And we are three friends who meet over the internet to discuss movies every couple of weeks. I don't know about y'all, but I have no upfront business right now. It is like very calm and still in my life. There's nothing exciting happening. Just been kind of biking around, bussing around, maybe going to the movies once or twice a week, but nothing new to report over here. Yeah, I uh, did the thing where I went camping and got feral in the woods again. I took a nap in my tent and my friend who I was camping with just suddenly shouted, whoa, and that's like not a thing you want to hear while you're taking a nap in a tent. I would fully expect a bear. <laughs> well, it turns out there was a bobcat like, ah! within oh, no. view, and it was chasing down um, mountain beavers, uh, which nobody outside of Oregon probably has ever heard about. But they're just these little gray, like nugget mammals that aren't actually beavers. They're closer to squirrels. And they dig a bunch of burrows, and they were just all around our campsite. Burrows for them everywhere. And I guess it's also good bobcat-like lunch location. They sound easy to hunt. Yeah, yeah, they looked pretty easy to hunt, unless you're near a bunch of humans that are shouting and scaring away (laughs) your lunch. The bobcat did not seem to care about us at all. And, you know, the kitten that... The adventure kitten that I've been going camping with was luckily in his van. So um, it was basically a full moon. So that was pretty cool. I went to the coast. I flew a kite successfully this time. Second attempt. Yeah, second attempt. I saw a bunch of tide pools and saw sea stars, which is cool. Because I'd never seen those in tide pools up here before. So... You know, overall, pleasant. But I also watched a couple of movies, actually. I finally watched Power of the Dog. Nice. And I liked it. I thought it was very good. At the same time, I... I don't know. I'm tired of the whole, like, hyper-masculine asshole is gay thing. It's just kind of like, why can't we have... A nice man being gay and also tired of the whole sociopath obsessed with his mother thing but other than that it's very good i know that's almost like the whole point of the movie but <laughs> for what it was i thought it was very good and i was also pretty glad that it was directed by a woman just because i feel like all that weird masculinity would have been handled totally differently if it had been directed by a cis man. But also, I can't stop thinking about <laughs> Chris and Dunst playing a very, like, distraught, drunk woman running around with these, like, beautiful gloves. <laughs> <laughs> that scene is so good. God, that The scene where she's playing the piano kind of poorly, and he is yes. just, like, showing off. Uh-huh. What, what is, he, is he playing, like, a guitar in the background? A banjo. Banjo. It's a banjo. (laughs) He is such an asshole in that moment. Yes. And it was just like, I guess I could kind of goof on this a little bit because it's been long enough that if you're going to see it, it's okay to be a little spoiled. But like in that moment, I was like, oh, this is like a great movie about having someone in your family who's 
death would instantly improve the lives of everyone they know. Uh-huh. <laughs> and then the movie like followed through on that uh, yes. in a very satisfying way. I was going to say it was so satisfying. Um <laughs> So I, I related to it in that way, even though I'm not like a huge Western genre fan, by which I mean I'm very much bored by yeah. the tropes and the setting and the moods of that genre yeah. in general. Um, so it hooked it hooked me just in how much of an asshole he is and how oh gosh, relatable that feeling was. It was like, if you just fucking died right now, everyone you know would have a better life. And uh, they did. <laughs> yeah. Which is great. Uh, yeah. I mean... Once again, I thought it was a lot like I'm making it sound like, oh, you know, stereotypical plot. It was more nuanced than like what I'm talking about uh, with their the problem themes. But I mean, you know, he's an asshole, but it definitely explores the possibility of him being like groomed and victimized. And, True. you know, the kid is definitely sociopathic, but also you know, sweet, and how much he likes his mom, and doesn't want to see her suffer. And, you know, I cannot blame him for the possible two men that he killed. <laughs> so, that's also spoilery, but who who cares? It's been out. It's on Netflix. This was on uh, Swampflix's top ten films of 2021 uh, yeah. eight months ago, so you've had your time. Say, they've had their time. <laughs> the listeners have had their time. And then on the absolutely opposite end, terrible movie, hated it section. Last night, I watched John Carpenter's Vampires. Oh, I've never seen that. It's so also bad. also did not like it when I saw it's it. It's <laughs> so bad. It's like one of those movies where I'm like, all of these men, I wish the vampires would just kill them all. And then they don't. <laughs> and it made me sad. <laughs> That movie and Ghosts of Mars in particular, just like, you've kind of run out of steam, buddy. Like, it's time to take a break. Yeah. Um, and, you know, he did. He plays video games and gets stoned, and now he plays his synth concerts for, yeah. you know, thousands of adoring fans. So I, th I think he knew it was time to, like, kind of pump the brakes a little bit. He's kind of running out of steam. Yeah, I mean, when you have a movie where multiple women are just slapped around, and it's okay, yeah. It's time to go, buddy. <laughs> that was like the main thing. Is just the treatment of women in this movie is appalling. And I know, like, it was made in the 90s, but that, no excuse. No excuse. It was appalling. Um, you know, Cheryl Lee is amazing in it, of course, but like the treatment of her characters. Oh, oh, I don't know. She's always these characters that men just kind of slap around. I hate it. So, yeah. Um, those are the two movies I watched and my goings-on. I want to break protocol here and jump the line to say that I also biked to a movie theater this week to watch a John Carpenter restoration at the Broad. Oh, yeah? I saw the 4K scan of The Fog. Oh, I love that oh, one. Oh, nice. Very nice. Uh, from a much earlier, you know, sharper era in John Carpenter's catalog mm -hmm. <laughs> than Vampires. So much better. I liked it, but didn't love it, to be honest. Heathen. Heathen. <laughs> the first time I saw The Thing was also on the big screen at the Britannia, and it was a midnight showing, and I was, like, falling asleep during it, even though I was, like, riveted. 
And uh, the next morning I rewatched it over coffee. <laughs> and, like kind of reviewed what I missed as I like kind of slipped in and out of consciousness. Cause a 12 PM movie is difficult for me at this stage of my life. Yeah. Um, this was earlier. It was like 7 PM and I was having the same effect. Like my eyes were kind of like rolling in the back of my head. And I immediately biked home and rented the movie VOD to like rewatch the last 40 minutes to make sure I didn't miss anything. <laughs> I don't know what it is about like his kind of like matter of fact staging of these like, uh, you know, supernatural events, or maybe it's just kind of the eerie mood. But like, I, I guess I get it more in this one than in the thing where it's like the first f- five minutes are this like, kind of like campfire story of these ghosts that had like uh, crashed on the rocks of this California seaside town. And then the movie kind of proves that you could tell that ghost story in five minutes and then retells it as the ghosts return on that like titular fog um, over the next 90 minutes. And there's not a lot happening. It's just like a lot of mood and, you know, a smoke machine in a dream. And a lighthouse. And a lighthouse. Uh, You know, a great cast of like horror regulars, you know, both Janet Lee and Jamie Lee Curtis are in it. So, you know, there's like some good pedigree there. And Adrian, Adrian Barbeau, Barbeau is so cool in this movie. She's I love so her in this. cool in that movie. Uh, <laughs> She's like, just like lighthouse radio, DJ. DJ lighthouse. Yeah, pretty much Light. living the dream, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> She's got the smoothest I love how we're voice. all falling over each other for this. Yes, it's <laughs> all of our dreams. I love her in it. She is impeccable. I have no notes on her performance or even on what Carpenter does with what was looked like a limited budget. Like, really, just like a fog machine and a synth. And he's, like, creating a movie that, you know, decades later is still beloved by many. Um, and I really did enjoy it overall. It's just maybe I, I'm not very patient. I don't know. Like, uh, <laughs> the uh, actual, like, ghost follow-through on that mood is, like, maybe in the last 20 or 30 minutes. And it's very um, limited in what it can achieve on the budget. So, like... It's satisfying once it happens, but he really is trying to get away with more than his resources will allow, which I love in concept. I just I kind of struggle to stay awake for the whole thing. Yeah, it's definitely a mood. It's a mood yeah, piece. A mood and piece. I'm very yeah. into those, <laughs> honestly. So especially horror wise, I don't know. I think it's because I'm a big weenie that I would rather something feel spooky than actually scare me. I love that the uh, the way that he achieves the ghosts is the same uh, method in Chud, where they're all like backlit uh, and have glowing eyes. Yes. <laughs> but, you know, Chud is like the uh, schlocky VHS rental, and this is like the elevated horror of its time. Chud is also uh, just good. <laughs> I don't I, I watched it recently, so I'm just like, oh, man, the politics of that movie are surprisingly great. So I'm into it. Into Chud. Pro Chud. Oh yeah, and one last bit of news is I just got my updated COVID booster. Woo! So yes, indeed, I've been boosted, and it's available for like everyone. So go get your your stabby jabbies. I need to do that specifically because I've been um, home alone more. Uh, my wife just went to grad school, so I've been like uh, just kind of. Palling around with the dog and uh, trying to fill up my free time. <laughs> I love her. So I've been going to the movies a lot more lately. So I, I need to I need to make sure I have my vaccines all up to date. The the other trip I took this week was to see Funny Pages, which is a new film. I don't know if y'all have seen the trailer for that or heard anything about it. No. No. 
especially recommended if you are like me, and I assume you are, uh, and you um, have a very strong affection for Ghost World. Yeah. Ooh. From 2001. I do. Uh, this looks and feels a lot like Ghost World. It might even be more sour and depressing than that film somehow. Um, <laughs> even though that movie doesn't pull any punches already. Yeah. This is a very short, very low-key, dark comedy about a comic books nerd who it seems like in the early 2000s it seems like it's even set around that same time drops out of high school to pursue his career making alt comics oh yes i've seen nothing but advertisements for this actually uh constantly <laughs> now that now that i know what you're talking about and it, it doesn't appeal to me at all and so really? it just keeps coming in and out of my brain yeah I didn't think it sounded good till I saw the trailer and the trailer made me laugh a lot. And I was like, Oh, okay. Like this actually has a good sense of humor to it. I thought, I thought it was very sharp. Fair enough. Did you see the trailer? I did. I've, I just bounced right off. you. It's just, it, I have seen the trailer so many times, you know, I I'm on the, um, the unpaid peacock tier and ah. I'm on the middly paid Hulu tier. So I've seen advertisements for it a lot. There, every time I sit down to watch Murder She Wrote, there's a I get another ad for it. It just it does not appeal to me, but that's you know not not everything has to. It's okay. I mean, I'm just gonna pitch it as a uh, Ghost World, except every character is as interesting looking as Steve Buscemi. <laughs> like every single actor on screen is like fascinating to look at in the same way that Steve Buscemi is, um, including uh, one of the people from Our Flag Means Death. Uh, the uh, bald gentleman who is very proud of the fact that he was in Blackbeard's crew. Oh, yeah. Uh, he's very funny in this as this ornery comic book dropout who um, is currently being sued by the local CVS in <laughs> some shitty suburb of New Jersey and is just a miserable piece of shit, <laughs> much like everyone else in the film. Um, it's, it's definitely a feel bad hangout comedy about a bunch of people who are much like Seymour in Ghost World, like too ornery and niche obsessed for their own good and can't build any meaningful relationships or politics because they only care about subversive art and not about, you know, other human beings. I was a big fan. Honestly, I, I thought the trailer was funny and then I was surprised to find the movie like actually had some depth to it. And I don't know, ended up being one of my favorite movies I saw all year so far. Nice. I want to know what doesn't appeal to you about it. Or is it just like, nope. Don't care. <laughs> it's just that blank. You know, the reason for why it didn't appeal to me, you basically just kind of explained the whole thing because you gave the plot. Uh, you know, I saw that. I was like, oh, this is a movie for. It feels like it's it's a, it's like Ghost World made more for straight people. <laughs> but it's but it's satirizing that point of view, though. That was just how it felt to me in the trailer. I'm not, you know. Okay. I don't know. It just didn't. It didn't click with me. I'm sorry. It's a, it's a no for me, bro. All right. For now, who knows? I thought American Splendor was Ghost World for straight people. Ooh. I think that's more accurate. Well, when when it's when it's streaming somewhere, I'll I'll give it another shot. Maybe the advertisements that it presents to me are based upon a broken algorithm, and it's a different trailer than what you saw. It's a very cheap film. I would be surprised if they could afford two trailers. To be honest, I don't think Eve 24 has put very much um, money behind the marketing of this. Uh, it, it barely played in any theaters around here, and it's already gone. 
Well, what else have you been watching besides ads on uh, Peacock and Hulu? Well, what's funny is <laughs> one of the things I definitely wanted to mention, and, and this is a perfect segue because of uh, Order of the Rings stuff, is that I showed my friend one of the best documentaries of the past few years, which was a three-part thing that Lindsay Ellis did about The Hobbit a few years back. I mean, it's on three separate videos. It's It presents itself as if it will be two of them. Um, and then becomes a third suddenly and unexpectedly, just like the Hobbit trilogy. I was going to say, did. yeah. And it's very detailed. It goes a lot into like the differences in production and then also the effects of like the Lord of the Rings on New Zealand's economy and specifically how the Actors Guild in New Zealand tried to unionize uh, and not boycott, but put a stop work order for the actors who are participating in the Hobbit trilogy, even after there had already been so much other behind the scenes troubled production to the point where Warner Brothers became involved with changing the laws of a sovereign nation. Like at the time, the prime minister of New Zealand was um, from their conservative party and was a former Merrill Lynch executive who basically rolled out the red carpet for Warner Brothers and changed labor laws in New Zealand so that actors were considered uh, contractors and therefore had Ugh. no right to bargain collectively. It's a fascinating story, depressing and really like, you know, she's a very personal filmmaker. So it's a documentary and it's a lot of just information, but also she gets into, you know, how the Lord of the Rings affected her as sort of a nascent uh, filmmaker how it made her interested, how Hollywood is is by no means like the industry with the highest amount of like sexual harassment, but people care about it more and it matters to them more when they learn about it because of our like emotional connection with the media that is created. It's a fascinating thing. Um, and I would recommend checking that out. We We kind of have skipped over the other big news this week, which was that the queen has died. And ironically, the day before, I watched the movie Victoria and Abdul. I should say Queen Elizabeth. I shouldn't say the queen as if she's the queen of Earth. I've never regretted not having my slide whistle within reach more than this moment right now. <laughs> Why? I definitely would have did a slide whistle as soon as I heard that she died on this podcast. <laughs> yeah, it's very exciting. I was out of service, and the first thing that happen once i was back within the realm of cell service like from the woods is like my cousin-in-law sending me a meme about the queen being dead and i was like i love my family this is great this is how i find out this very critical meme uh, have either of you heard of victoria and abdul i remember the trailer where he brings her a mango i saw that trailer like so many times oh he does bring her a mango that's true but Apparently, it's very suggestive. It, it is within the film also, although it's platonic. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, we've all had a platonic mango. Apparently, Victoria in her later years did have a very strong friendship. I mean, again, this is all sort of like we have to view this through the lens of history. So as much as a person who is, you know, the figurehead of colonialism could be friends with um, a person who suffered under colonization. Um, but she became friends with this Indian Muslim 
uh, who kind of joined the court. He came as part of an envoy, as part of like Indian, you know, servitude under the British Empire. And she became fascinated with him. She gave him an appointment within the house, much to the consternation of Bertie, uh, her son, who became King George, whatever. And um, the other members of the house who are all like, you know, shocked and appalled and popping their monocles that she would dare, you know, bring a brown person into the palace. And so, you know, we have to be careful with these kind of narratives. Apparently his journals were found maybe just like six years ago. And King George had really put in a lot of work to cover up this friendship that they had had, or at least this relationship. I don't know if we, again, with colonialism being such a huge part of this, the movie romanticizes their relationship a lot and it seems kind of sweet, but you know, you always have to remember to put on your, your critical goggles whenever you're, um, watching something like this but i did enjoy it and it made me um go back and do some reading on queen victoria and about her reign and i was particularly struck by you know how she was considered the grandmother of europe because of how all of her children married into these various royal families and then the his like the the history that i was reading it's like as a side effect you know she introduced hemophilia among all of the royal families of europe which i always forget about what a funny little detail and it Mm -hmm. made me just laugh at the monarchy and then the next day the queen died yeah and i was like wow did i do that (laughs) maybe maybe you are that powerful did you also i mean jean-luc godard died today did you also do that I might be responsible for Jean-Luc Godard's death, to be honest, because uh, today, recording on the day that he died, I am about to post a review of 1983 Breathless remake with Richard Gere, oh, um, in which yeah. I confess that I love it far more than the Godard original. Um, that's fair. <laughs> don't feel great about it, but I'm still posting it because that's what I was going to write about today. Yeah, um, you should still post I it. I feel like Godard wouldn't give a shit. Uh, he was, you know... One of the biggest rabble-rousing critics through punches. I know. I know. I begrudgingly, begrudgingly respect Godard, so. Have you seen the Breathless remake? No, I haven't, but I feel like I also would love it. It I mean, I love the original Breathless (laughs) as well, but, you know. The two great movies that I saw since we last spoke were I did go see 3,000 Years of Longing, as promised. And I adored it. I Great. loved it. You were right. I was going to love it, and I did. <laughs> it it gets a little messy at the end. Yeah, that's where it lost me a little bit. It unravels a little, like a like a carpet coming apart. And I think I don't know if maybe that's intentional because, like, it's like you know the film starts to sort of lose some of its cohesion at the same time that like the narrative the narrative echoing the character let's just say to avoid spoilers in a in a certain way but i was willing to go with it you know there are certain movies that i've gotten to where i'm like oh I, I wish this would just end because this one did sort of feel like it was ending multiple times i kept like getting ready to get up and then there was more movie and i was a little bit surprised <laughs> it felt like it came to a couple of different specific narrative endpoints and then kept going but i didn't necessarily want it to end either so i was still there every time that you know it it 
came back from a fade to black, I was like, oh, there's more good, even though it was starting to lose cohesion at that point and unravel a little bit. But I loved I loved it conceptually. I loved all of the visuals. I loved the talkiness that you were talking about, how so much of it is just narrated in voiceover. Everything was so sumptuous. Oh, I loved it. Every year, Tilda Swinton looks more and more like my grandmother. I'm not saying that she looks older, but it's like, oh, wow. Looking at her and now like going back and looking at pictures of my grandmother, it's shocking like how in my youth, or in my grandmother's youth, rather, she looked so much like young Tilda. And so with each passing year, she looks a little bit more like the grandmother that I knew growing up, not just from the photos from before I was born. And that's a very interesting journey to be on. I'm, uh, I've been listening to reviews of uh, The Eternal Daughter, just premiered at festivals this week, where she plays her own daughter. like She plays like a mother-daughter duo on like a shitty vacation. <laughs> oh, wow. I'm just continually in love with her choices and roles. Yeah. And like how many little quirks she brings to each one, but it never like goes far enough to like be a turnoff. Yeah. I'm just always in mm-hmm. love with what she's doing. She can make you really hate a character, but you oh, never yeah. hate her. Yeah. We quote, we quote the be a shoe speech all the time. I was, ju- oh, I was literally, that's exactly yes. what I was thinking about. I was, <laughs> but what just, a despicable piece like, of shit. Uh-huh. I was like, should we even open the can of worms about where the shoe belongs? The shoe does not <laughs> go on the head. The shoe goes on the foot. <laughs> wow. I'm so glad that's part of our collective psychosis yep. of this group. And then I'm continuing to sort of skip around in this like back half of the Coen Brothers summer watch. But I saw for the first time a serious man and I loved it. I wasn't expecting to. My best friend, um, she once told me that she thinks it's her uh, least favorite and most boring. And I think that I could not agree less. Have y'all seen this one? I have. I know nothing about it. It's been a while. I'm due for a rewatch on that one. I feel like I enjoyed it at the time. And it's I remember so it having a lot of very like striking like images. Oh, there's so much great mid-century modern like furniture yes. and decor. You know, it, it's it's sort of a, a Job story, Brandon, where um Michael Stuhlbarg, who I guess I know him most from the third season of Fargo that he's in, and also Every time I think that they've brought Stephen Root onto something and de-aged him digitally, <laughs> every time I think that that's what I'm seeing, it's Michael Stuhlbarg. I don't know how to explain it any better than that. I thought he was excellent on uh, Boardwalk Empire back when I used to watch TV more seriously than I do now. So you know who what he looks like. Does he not look like digital? No, I buy that. Yeah. Every time I see him. And, and it makes sense to me because Stephen Root was also like in... Oh, brother, where art thou? And was like part of that like whole Coen Brothers production posse. So I don't know. He's uh, it's set in 1967. He is a physics professor who is up for tenure, and then everything seems to be going pretty well. But then, like Job, everything in his life just starts to fall apart. His uh, wife decides that she would like a legal divorce and also a religious get which means that she would 
uh, be allowed to remarry without becoming an Aguna uh, within the culture. And so she wants to marry uh, this other guy, you know, that she's been having a purely emotional relationship with. But also his brother has been staying with them, is unable to find a job, is working on his own sort of like Kabbalistic physics that he calls uh, the Mentaculous, (laughs) or the uh, Mentaculous, which is like allows him to supposedly predict all events while his like son is stealing money from his daughter to like buy weed even though he's only like 13 years old and preparing for his like bar mitzvah right oh my god it, the every scene is so funny because as his life is falling apart he goes to multiple different like rabbis all of whom give him less and less useful information and they don't start out very great and apparently it's one of their most like autobiographical because you know they specifically sought out to shoot in a neighborhood that looked like their neighborhood growing up it's really funny i really enjoyed it visually it's great i laughed so much I- i'm really surprised that my best friend was like oh this is like probably my least favorite of theirs or their most boring because i would definitely put it above hudsucker proxy for me i almost would put it above miller's crossing I really enjoyed it. Uh, can't recommend it highly enough. Just, you know, kind of kind of just let it drift over you. And it's a lot of fun. There's a really great section where one of the rabbis that the character goes to uh, just tells him this really long, winding story about a dentist who attends the synagogue with them who discovered, like, Hebrew writing on the inside of the teeth of one of his patients. And he like took a mold and then became obsessed with this, like, you know, what was written there and like, you know, was trying to decipher it. And then at the end, the rabbi doesn't like decipher the story for our main character either. It's very much just a like, yeah, I mean, life is like that. Sometimes you just get a bunch of long rambling stories that don't really have a point. It's very Cohen Brothers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I loved it. I loved it so much. I am a big recommend from me. I wonder what it is about Michael Stubog that uh, makes people want to cast him as a professor. Because as you were saying that, I was picturing him both Shirley and in Call Me By Your Name uh, as this like uh, kind of grizzled professor type. Oh my god, is he the is he the husband? He's Shirley's husband. Yeah, he's a wow. real drunken asshole in that one. <laughs> he's such a chameleon, you know. I, I will say that, like, not just because every time I see him. Again, I think that he's Stephen Root. It's that he completely disappears into a role. He was in the Doctor Strange movie that just came out this year, very briefly, you know, reprising a role that I guess he had in the first one, according to like the IMDb, but like I don't remember that. And um, he that was the moment that I was like, God, is that is that Stephen Root? Are they gonna like, are they gonna use big some do some big dumb expensive CGI nonsense later? And I need to recognize that this is Stephen Root for something to make sense down the line. But nah, he's just a uh, he disappears into his work. He plays a um, very terrifying booze running gangster in Boardwalk Empire, whose uh, tick is that instead of drinking alcohol, he drinks whole glasses of milk. Terrifying stuff psychopathic behavior oh are you a milk hater <laughs> oh yeah god okay yeah you're on this you're on this podcast with two milk haters i'm sorry i just cannot mm. imagine like an adult human being just drinking a full glass of whole milk like yeah. a tall glass of milk that's disgusting it's gross 
I don't do dairy, but I don't even drink like tall, full glasses of like dairy replacement milk of choice. Ew, why would you? Hey, living in the South, I'm not, I'm not going to turn my nose up at anything with uh, tons of butter and heavy cream in it, you know, if it's in the recipe. I'm just talking about like a glass isolated by itself of milk. Yeah. <laughs> That's where I start getting grossed out. Yeah, I, my body doesn't like dairy. No one's body likes it. <laughs> it's just, it just tastes good when it's mixed with other stuff. I don't want to be like that kid on the mother swapping show or whatever who was like, I like bacon. It's good for me. I don't want to be like that kid. Uh, his name is King Curtis. <laughs> <laughs> my body doesn't hate, but does not hate dairy. So, Chicken nuggets are my family. Chicken Love King Curtis. <laughs> I'm not saying that I'm out here drinking full glasses of milk, but you know, I made some very delicious chocolate chip cookies last week. You know, maybe I had some milk with them. Who knows? That's different. Because <laughs> some of the cookie gets in the milk. Okay, do you... How, are we Are we allowing for the drinking of cereal milk? Or are oh, we just yes. Like over? Fine, yeah. Okay. Tastes delicious. Okay, all right. Well, then we're... we're we can... We can be cautious allies. Do you remember like the, when the Nazi kids were like just chugging like yes. gallons oh of milk to prove a point a few years ago? So disgusting. Not good PR for milk. <laughs> no, good. that's true. Uh, okay, I'm going to pour myself a glass of wine. So long as it's not milk. I thought you were about to go get you a glass, a glass of milk. Of milk. <laughs> I got so I know too. You know what he said? He said, the only thing that burns in hell is the part of you that won't let go of your life. Your memories, your attachments, they burn them all away. But they're not punishing you, he said. They're freeing your soul. So the way he sees it, if you're frightened of dying and, and you're holding on, you'll see devils tearing your life away. But if you've made your peace, then the devils are really angels freeing you from the earth. It's just a matter of how you look at it, that's all. So today we're going to talk about Jacob's Ladder, which is a 2019 psychological thriller starring Michael Ely. He's got a brother who's suffering PTSD and has addiction issues from the Gulf War. Um, I'm kidding. I did watch the remake, though, and it was fucking awful. It's so <laughs> bad. I, I, was, I wondered if you were going to... I wondered how far you would go because <laughs> I wasn't going to stop you. I could see what you were doing, and I was like, mm -hmm. "Let's just let's just see how this goes." How much more could you possibly say about that movie? There's really nothing going on in it. Like it drains everything interesting of, out of the original. Everything, everything, and and it's not even that. It's look. I understand. It's not the Gulf War. It's Afghanistan. My and I understand the like. I understand the reasoning why. Right. I get it. If you've got yourself involved in another Vietnam as a nation, why not have another <laughs> Jacob's Ladder? But <laughs> it's so bad. It's so bad. It's from that uh, Paul Verhoeven school of remakes where they just like defang everything and just take all mm -hmm. the texture out of it and all the flavor. It's just gruel. Like there's just like, nothing on the screen. Wait, I don't understand you calling that the Verhoeven method though. Because uh, they remade RoboCop and um, oh, and Total Recall, Total Recall a few years ago. Yeah, okay, yep, you're right. I'm with you. I get you now. Okay. Well, the original Jacob's Ladder is a uh, 1990 film 
about the effects of the Vietnam War on the psyche of the men who survived it. I wanted to watch this for the podcast because I purchased a copy of the DVD at a Goodwill recently. Um, and I've been thinking a lot about its director, Adrian Lyne, uh, for the last couple years. We did an episode on his erotic thrillers. And then he had a new erotic thriller this year with Ben Affleck called Deep Water. And I have yet to enjoy one of his movies, even though I love the erotic thriller genre. Uh, and he's like one of the main hmm. directors of it. So like Fatal Attraction and A Decent Proposal. Like he is like one of the guys of that genre. And I think his movies yeah. suck in general. <laughs> <laughs> that is interesting because I, I guess I never really thought much about it. But when I was looking at lines like other if you if you just go to his Wikipedia page and you go to like the section that is his filmography and you just sort of go, you know, you do the thing where you let your mouse hover over it. Every single movie that he has made other than Jacob's Ladder just about is blank is an erotic thriller. They're all erotic thrillers. Yeah. This seems to be the only non-erotic one that he's ever made. And I guess even that's kind of arguable. There are some like sexually charged scenes that I think wouldn't be far oh, yeah. off. Old girl's a babe. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, Jezebel, his girlfriend uh, is definitely in the same line of, you know, super sexually charged temptresses from a long yeah. line of like, uh, you know, wayward women in lines films. And I actually struggled to fit this movie into his catalog until I rewatched the film with his director's commentary on it and I got it. So basically Tim Robbins plays a soldier who um, has returned from Vietnam and is dating a coworker who's much more hot to trot than his wife. Like she likes to go out dancing and sweating and she hates the mention of his children or anything. That's not fun. <laughs> like uh, yeah. he, he starts crying over a photograph of his dead child and she burns it in the incinerator. Cause she doesn't like things that make him sad. Like she is a pure hedonist. I mean, there, yeah, that's, that also has to do. I mean, that's sort of like a literalization of what the movie's metaphor is. And it's like metaphysical, metaphysical aspects as well. Yes, and the movie is um, very hard to pin to real life. It becomes purely metaphysics very quickly uh, because in the corner of Jacob's eye, as he like walks back and forth from his job as a postman in New York City, you know, taking the subway, uh, hanging out with his extremely horny girlfriend and ignoring his wife, who is a virtuous angel at home, uh, raising his kids without him, he starts to see these monsters, uh, these like, Cronenbergian creatures out of the corner of his eye. And that's where this is like a huge deviation from Lyne's usual stuff. Is it, This feels like the surreal horrors of a Cronenberg movie or maybe a Ken Russell film mm -hmm. where everything yeah. is like highly biblical. You know, his name, Jacob, and the name of his children are like Eli and Gabriel, you know, Jezebel, his girlfriend. It's all, it's all like very metaphor in that way. All of them prophets. Sarah is also a biblical name. Yeah, yeah, Sarah is Abraham's wife. Yeah, is Sarah his his angelic wife at home? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So these like creatures start popping up, and he uncovers what he thinks is this conspiracy where the government experimented on its own so soldiers. Like the American government poisoned soldiers with this like experimental LSD type drug in the field during the Vietnam War, and um, he starts to reconnect with his his old like battalion platoon. mates. Yeah his, yeah. his platoon. And they are going to sue the government and, and like open this investigation. 
but he can't get a grip on reality. The the further he gets into it, he starts seeing these like kind of faceless G-men that are like following him around. Um, the creatures become more and more brazen and like out in the open, but he still can't get a full good look at them. And then the movie starts pulling the rug from under you so many times that you don't really know what's happening anymore. Did he actually survive the war? Is he actually at home with his girlfriend? Or is this like his dying dream on the battlefield? Or is this all a projection before he even goes to war um, where he's like in bed with his wife and his kids, um, including the one who supposedly died, projecting uh, this like miserable future onto his life? And it actually reminded me of that. um, My favorite X-Files episode, the one with the mushroom, where they keep leaving the mushroom and they keep getting pulled back to like this like same starting point where they keep thinking they get away from it. Uh, The movie does that to the viewer a lot. Like, this is a film where the ending is, it was all just a dream, but it's satisfying in this context because that is something that happens repeatedly throughout it. It's not a cheat. Uh, the movie it keeps questioning what the baseline reality is. I think it goes for the most conventional answer possible in the last 15 minutes. Really? Yeah, I think so. And maybe that's from watching too much external material. Like, there's a scene where Jacob descends into hell through this hospital um, and he gets this injection in his forehead uh, where he's like trying to explain to these like demonic doctors who are, you know, tying him down and like doing things to his body that he is alive and not dead. After that point, I feel like the movie gets very calm and conventional and soothing in a way that everything that happened before it is not. And they actually removed a couple scenes where the audience is faked out again and again. You keep thinking he gets away from hell uh, and gets away from the torment of dying. But instead it goes this more like calming angelic route where you're sort of like given this um, path to his version of heaven. It's a much happier ending than you normally see in a horror movie. Yeah. True. It's a much kinder ending. And it really feels like it's sort of swaddling you after really getting you out of your comfort zone. This movie is scarier every time I see it. I never stop being scared of what's happening in this movie. Maybe I'm alone in that, but honestly, I think this is one of the actually like scariest horror movies I've ever seen. And this is like my fourth or fifth time. And I think the way it achieves that is by not showing you everything. It yeah. allows your imagination to fill in the blanks. Like you see enough oh, yeah. of a ghoulish image to be freaked out by it you only see a fraction of what the ghoul looks like Mm -hmm. and you can't fully wrap your mind around it before the the image has moved on. And you're like, what was that? I'll be honest. Since this was like my fifth time seeing this movie, I did slow down some of those scenes for the first time to be like, what is it that I'm seeing? And I'm going to be honest with you. It doesn't, it doesn't tell you anything more. (laughs) It's just as inscrutable when you watch it slowed down and it doesn't make it once again, no less scary. Yeah, I liked the spooky monsters the best out of anything else. And I don't know, I kind of wish they're like, I know that the movie holding it back is part of why it was scary. But at the same time, I'm like, oh, just show more, show more of of these spooky guys. Apparently a lot was cut. Apparently the first like cut that was screened for like test audiences was considered by them to be too intense. They mostly cut a lot of stuff from the last third. Mm. Yeah, that's what I'm saying they removed. Um, the two scenes they removed were 
one where he confronts Jezebel in the apartment again, and her face does that um, quick time elapse thing that a lot of the monsters do. Yeah. Where her head is like yeah. moving very fast. You can't get a grip on like what you're looking at. Um, but at the end of that blur, it stops and her face turns into his face. And he's like looking at a mirror image of himself, which is a very like cool hmm. scene. Yeah, that sounds, that sounds cool. And another scene they cut was when he meets with the chemist who worked for the government and developed the titular Jacob's Ladder, which is like the scary LSD drug. The guy offers him an antidote to undo the psychological damage of the drug. And then he takes it and you think that everything's good again. But then you get the rug pulled from under you one last time. <laughs> and like uh, that, that's what I'm saying. Like the movie goes for a more comforting, simpler answer than, um, than what I guess was originally written and filmed. Yeah. Um, okay. So the chemical, they mention it at the end, but it is based off a real chemical and it was like loosely written about a real experiment. Yeah, they add a title card at the end yeah. to like say, like, this really happened. And recently, apparently, there's a documentary about the experiments, and I really want to watch it, but mm. it's only on Discovery Plus. Dr. Del- Delirium and the Edgewood Experiments, so I have to hunt that down at some point. In a way, that title sounds more like trashy horror than Jacob's Ladder. Though. I know, right? <laughs> but yeah, uh, one thing I was really um, a little bit baffled by is this, you know, kind of angelic cherub god type figure being a chiropractor? <laughs> okay, I think that what that means, like for me, what he's all, what the whole movie is about is like, you know, it's pretty it's made explicit in his speech, I think, you know, about how this early Christian mystic saw that heaven and hell are the same thing. Mm -hmm. It's just that if you can't let go of the things that matter to you in your mortality, then you feel like something's being taken from you rather than being liberated. And that it's burning that away, which is, you know, ties into Jezebel literally burning away his memories. And I think that him being a chiropractor is, is very explicitly that, you know, a chiropractor resets your body. It brings you back into functionality. They, you know, they cause a lot of very strange, like going to a chiropractor isn't just painful. It's scary too. There's these cracks. Yeah. And these like horrible noises that are coming from inside of your body. I think body. I'm just too chiropractic cynical. <laughs> uh, but I have I get, been to a chiropractor. I, I but yes. Okay. Also, uh, there's that like kind of urban legendish understanding of LSD where it's like stored in your spine. Oh yeah, and the chiropractor yeah. Kind of unlocking okay. the drug there we go. sometimes and like making him trip out a little bit. Yeah. Okay. Uh, that yeah. makes more sense. Oh. <laughs> All right. Sorry. I just i I want to buy that version more, especially since at the end it's like explicitly like this is a chemical he took. That the army gave to him. Okay. Well, also at the end, I think they make it pretty explicit that nothing we've seen on the screen actually happened. Yeah. Right. Like, yeah. He never left right. that battlefield. No. And I kind of wish it didn't explain that. Yeah. So I was going to say I wish it were still like a mystery. Okay. I will say I like how we do get the answer, but again, that's me because I was thinking while watching this, like, oh, this is a movie that is not normally what I like. Because this is a movie that presents multiple different rational answers and spiritual ones 
and the spiritual one is correct but i think that this is like the movie that does it perfectly where you know all that we have seen is you know it is his owl creek moment it's you know this momentary hell that he's going through in order to release the bonds of earth you know yeah it definitely is an owl creek thing for some reason i didn't even connect that so glad you're throwing that one out there that's what i'm here for I'm here to Ambrose Bierce it up. Thank you. That's why they pay me the no bucks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I I will say I was thinking that while watching it that I actually this time I was like, oh, it is kind of a clever idea. I thought that it was, you know, that God was a chiropractor because he's sort of like overseeing kind of this whole process of purging the pain into a new functionality through what is a scariness that like you're you're frightened of the sound that comes from within your own body and like in the scene that was cut it is like jacob looking at himself it's all of this is coming from inside of him but he's being reshaped into the version of himself that is ready to go what's really funny to me about the chiropractor stuff is like they're so proud of that speech about perspective and like you know, the angels are actually demons or vice versa, depending on how you look at it. And uh, <laughs> that is not concisely conveyed in any way. Like that speech goes on and on in a way that's like very hard to soundbite. You know, it's like, well, actually, if you look at it from this way, then the demons are actually angels. Like it just it, it has like too many like little twists and turns verbally. You would think that in that scene, you would want a very digestible little snippet of dialogue. But it's like a long walk. It felt very like classic movie. Every time a bell rings. Yeah, I was going to say it sounds like a line that's straight out of It's a Wonderful Life. <laughs> like, yeah. Which I appreciate it. This actually. is kind of like the fucked up uh, It's a Wonderful it Life in a, in a way. Yeah. Yeah. Owl <laughs> Creek, It's a Wonderful Life, you know. I guess what kind of bothers me a little bit um, about the movie, but I don't think ruins it in any way, is like. If he is dying and this is all metaphorical, then like this plays directly into the Adrian line playbook where like the wife at home is heaven. The wayward woman is hell. <laughs> and like, I loved Jesse. Yeah, I thought she was like was the coolest say, character in the movie. He's great. great. And that party. Okay. <laughs> that party was awesome. I will put this out there as like my hot take of the episode. <laughs> that. Dance party sex scene where she's um, grinding on a demon who eventually impales her on a horn is a better version of the alien sex scene from Possession. (laughs) I think it's like a better like staging of a gag that was already done in Possession, which I'm not downplaying Possession. That's a great film. Love it as well. But uh, this that dance party scene, I was like, is this one of the best movies ever made? Um, and yeah. I kind of, uh, I don't want to say I lost that feeling, but like towards the end, I was like, oh, okay, this is more conventional than maybe I thought it was going to be in the first half. Cause that, that whole party sequence is so layered and textured and there's so much life, um, flowing through every interaction and like, it really is disorienting. And then that strobe light yeah. <laughs> dance floor fuck fest, it's just like so upsetting and bizarre that like, I was just completely floored by it. I want y'all to know that. Literally in my notes, I wrote Monster Mash because <laughs> that is that party and I loved it. Are you familiar with the uh, Monster Mash parody Monster Fuck? 
I am. And also applies here. <laughs> Maybe too literally. Yeah. Also pretty cool uh, on the commentary. He was bragging about how all of the effects were done in camera. And there was no like special Ooh, effects touching up. That's awesome. It's like all the time elapsed yeah. stuff was like done in person. You know, there's multiple prosthetics and like multiple people working those like bat wings and phallic tails and horns in that dance party. That's so um, cool. The crow that is bothering Tim Robbins at that party is just a mount that he was wearing with like a crow on a string. Yeah. So he was like operating it himself. Lots oh, of lots wow. of cool like fun like hands on tactile stuff. I was going to say on it movie. felt very practical. So I, I'm happy to know that even the, you know, fast motion head shaky thing was practical as well. That's so cool. It's so good. There's so many little creepy things. There's so many. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the lamb head, just like the, oh, I, I lamb head. the, the dance scene a couple times because it's like just bloody gnashing teeth that you can't identify, you know, like. It's so scary. It's so it gets in your brain. The uh, rubber monster mass that's like sucked in uh, as the creatures almost run him over with a car yes. and they speed off. Yes, <laughs> fucking terrifying. I also thought it was interesting this time. You know, I always forget that this movie is a Christmas movie. Like, yeah. Yeah. at least in the the theoretical present where he's living with Jesse, <laughs> he gets robbed by Santa. And I think that that's part of it, though, right? Because, like, Jesse burned all of his photos except for the one he had in his wallet. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's just because I read the Narnia books too much when I was a kid and it warped my brain. But, like, I kind of, you know, Santa is acting as Aslan or God's agent here, right? By once again, you know, finding him in his, in his vulnerable moment and stripping away one more thing that he was trying to hold on to, you know? Am I reading too much into that? I mean, I buy yes, that. but also I just want this horrible Santa to have robbed him. I don't think you can read too much into a movie this metaphorical. Yeah. Like, it, it invites you to read every detail of some kind of biblical allegory. But also, like Ali was just saying, like the real world effect of that, I think Line does a good job of like just texturing every interaction to make it feel like a real lived-in space. So, like, when he goes to work in the office, there are people off camera talking to him and making jokes that you never even really get a good look at. Mm-hmm. Um, or, like, when he's going home, there are the girls on the stoop who sing, hey, Mr. Postman. Oh, I love that scene. Right. Uh, the lamb's head in the fridge, uh, getting robbed by Santa Claus. Like, there's just a lot of, like, quirky New York City living textured to these interactions. Um, yeah. That makes the movie feel more terrifying because it feels like a real environment with real people in it. And that's one of the things that like Jesse even mentioned. She's like, New York is full of monsters, you know, like <laughs> don't worry about it. It's fine. Especially after he has that really creepy interaction with the, like the, the ghost train, the ghost train and that lady, oh, the midnight meat train, the midnight meat train goes right on by. Yeah, the uh, phallic tail that he first sees, like, that's the first indication that there are monsters in this. There's, like, a um, homeless man sleeping on the train under a blanket, and you see just a little bit of a tail moving, but it's this blunt, fleshy object. I was like, oh, I didn't know this was going to be, like, a. I, I honestly knew nothing about this. I did not expect Cronenbergian monsters to be popping out from every corner, <laughs> and that was, like, the mm. first introduction of that concept. I did know that it was going to be war-based. 
Like I knew that was like right. a thematic anchor to it. Yeah. Um, I, and I'm generally. I was gonna say you're generally anti horror movies, so I was I was curious how you would fit that whole thing in. I think it's kind of perfect because it's like not about battlefield warfare. It's like about yeah. the actual effects of war, <laughs> and like how do you return to a normal life after you've been through hell? I, I think the movie conveys that surreality very clearly, especially since he's so clearly like one of the people that would have just have been drafted like you know he doesn't seem like a pro-war sort of guy i mean he'd went to yeah. college and has a phd and a family i think there's a lot of the exploration of grief of being ripped away from all of that too i mean also because of tim robbins like real life personality you kind of expect him to be like uh you know a defector yeah yeah <laughs> you know someone who ran for the border I will say that um, when the movie opened with like the helicopters at sunset, I was like, God, this is every like Vietnam war movie cliche. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. Yep. <laughs> it really tricks you into thinking you're going to be watching a much more boring movie. Yeah. Right at the start. And then it turns into this beautiful tapestry. I, I loved the, this. I might, uh, this might be my favorite viewing of it. Great. I, I, every time I see this movie, I love it more. It's so good. And I actually, you know, I had concerns that maybe you would not like it this much since you had never seen it. And it's one of those, it's a movie like The Crying Game or The Sixth Sense where kind of culturally everybody, quote unquote, everybody knows what it's about. And it's really not that simple. Yeah. It's much more complicated than that. You know, it's a common twist, I'll say maybe. but. I will say the last like 20 minutes was like more what I expected out of it. And it was more like mainstream Hollywood filmmaking and not line trying to compete with Cronenberg and Russell, who I feel like are really daring and how willing they are to torture the audience uh, subliminally and like drag them through hell. But like before he hits that come down, he really is throwing punches with the best of them. Like this is not an easy sit. Um, and I was I was really impressed by it, and it felt nice to enjoy one of his movies for once, because because he, he is like a good visual stylist, and he does have a lot of like messy human interactions in his movies. Usually, I just never seen them put to such good use as they were here. Like th- this really is him at the height of his powers. Um, I I have not yet seen Flashdance. I feel like I'm going to enjoy that one as well. Uh, maybe I saved the best two for last. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but I, I don't know if I'll enjoy it as much as I enjoyed Jacob's Ladder, which I thought was very good. Good enough to rewatch with uh, his commentary on the next. I was going to say, so I, I, yeah, wow. I feel like I, I just I feel you know? like I owe it a rewatch. I don't think I was as hot on it as y'all are, but you know, going through this conversation, learning about like the process, it might be one of those movies that grows on you the more watches you have of it especially because it's so like full of details yeah there's probably stuff that you wouldn't bought the first time but also just like knowing the destination yeah might make it more satisfying too because you're not sitting there going like where's this going what does that mean um you don't don't have to worry about that on the second watch you kind of just take it in so yeah i probably appreciated it more watching it twice in two days than i would have if i just like kind of threw it on over dinner or whatever right and it sounds like I need to like get to the fifth or sixth watch um, to meet Boomer's um, even more enthusiastic reception. Join me here <laughs> in Nirvana on the outside. Is it perfectly angelic Macaulay Culkin waiting oh, for me yes! there? Yes! <laughs> oh my gosh, baby Macaulay Culkin. I, I'll say it's strange because this does not seem 
Like, if you talk about all of the individual pieces of this movie, it's not really something that's normally something I would enjoy. Yeah. Where it so clearly comes down on the side of the spiritual, where so much of it is about, like, fatherhood and relationships. But I I don't know. I love this movie. It's beautiful. When he's cold, I feel cold. Oh, his performance is incredible. I don't I don't really know how else to describe it other than like this movie is a journey and you are captivated by it and carried away by it by the whole the whole time that you're watching. It's a it's a journey downwards. It feels like if you're like you're descending in some kind of like level of subconscious that's like really hard to emerge from. (laughs) So maybe it is good that it buoys you a little bit at the end. But he kind of he kind of like dies several times throughout. Not only do characters keep telling him that he's already dead. Mm -hmm. But also, like, he goes through these tribulations, like the uh, the hospital scene, but also you're talking about him being so cold. Like, there's a scene where he's feverish in a bathtub and they just keep pouring more and more yeah. ice on him. His, like, physical acting in that scene is incredible. Yeah. It's it's not just the makeup that makes him look dead, but, like, yeah. just the, the, the tears streaming from his eyes and just, like, his total freaked out attitude mm-hmm. uh, towards everyone and everything, like, crossing his path. Like, I mean, it would be hard not to act like that as, like, a dozen people are dumping ice on you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I, just, I mean, not to knock Tim Robbins' acting, because I, I do think he's very, very good in this, but <laughs> I was just watching that being like, oh my god, what a horrible scene to have to film. I will note that uh, a large percentage of the ice was uh, either rubber or plastic. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> they weren't killing him on camera. <laughs> good to know. I mean, it, it wasn't long enough for him died from people pouring <laughs> ice on him. Yeah, I hope you get like this one take <laughs> before I freeze to death. I love that transition too because up until that point there ha- you understand the linear progression of each of the three sort of periods of time in his life the movie is taking place mm-hmm. in. Before the war with his family, the war with his platoon, and then after the war with Jesse. But for the first time, he's sort of back in the pre-war part of his life, but he's somehow maybe dreaming about his future or dreaming about these events that theretofore might have just taken place on a future part of this timeline. It's the first time where you start to be like, wait, what is really happening to him? Maybe it's not just hallucinations. Because I actually think that the army psychological substance test explanation i really believe it for most of it maybe y'all don't maybe that's because that's what i always like like when we talked about um diabolique where never for even a moment did i entertain the thought it never crossed my mind that there might actually be a ghost (laughs) you know um i was like yeah there's not a ghost it's just you know weird stuff happening never even crossed my mind maybe that's what's happening here where i was very thoroughly like oh this is a movie about the army's malfeasance in its treatment of its own soldiers. Um, and I think that it actually effectively conveys that and is convincing about that. Although, you know, you once again, like you said, get the rug pulled out from under you. And, and that's just another part of the delusion, another level of it. I kind of wish they didn't explain in the ending title card that that actually happened in real life. I agree. It, it kind of cheapens it um, because, you know, effectively we learn at the end that like, you know, these hallucinations never really happened within the reality of this movie. He was hallucinating 
off of his own brain power as it was shutting down, uh, not off of like some drug, you know? So I think that kind of cheapens it a little bit, but, but in general, I I'm always going to be pushing for movies that do pull the rug un- from out from under you in this way. And I, I feel like yeah. movies have the power to put you in a headspace and in a like surreal realm that like no other art form can. Um, and when this movie's at its best, it's doing that exact thing in like the most terrifying ways possible. <laughs> and uh, I think that's what I liked most about it. So of course I didn't want to be crashed back down to reality with that. Like, uh, you know, this, this thing really well, happens on the battlefield. If it, title if it helps, again. it's very overblown in this movie. Meaning that um, they weren't given like 10,000 hits of acid while uh, operating a rifle on the battlefield. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it wasn't okay. like the whole pl- platoon. <laughs> Just one poor guy. I mean, I'm pretty sure originally it wasn't even soldiers that they experimented on. So, you know, it's overblown. If that, if that helps y'all at all. This is where we have to disclose that um, Ali is a government agent who's here to do some PR uh, <laughs> softening. <laughs> uh, no, because I looked into it immediately afterwards because I, I love this stuff. Um, like... I don't know. I'm not a conspiracy theory person, but I love learning about any time the military has fucked up, which is it's a very specific interest. Didn't Errol yes, Morris? Yes, I was do a just about, about to say Wormwood. Wormwood. Yeah, because right. I watched all of Wormwood, just totally transfixed. Um, that sounds like alley material right there. Yeah, yeah. it's my stuff. <laughs> it's it's a very specific niche um, that I I do like to learn about this stuff, especially when a movie's like this happened like i don't know about that um it didn't happen it did happen but it didn't happen and i don't think it really matters either way it kind of reminded me of the end of the witch where you know there's a title card that like says you know this is all very well researched and based off like real accounts and you know all this like old records it's like why are you bringing me down from this like ethereal yeah. mental space that I'm in to like it's like real world concrete facts? Yeah, again. I wish that had been at the beginning of the wit. Yeah, that's fair. Um, because I do, I do love it was written that way. But you're right, having it appear at the end is it's extra textual, yeah. <laughs> and it makes the movie less interesting. Less I think magical. Yeah, exactly. Well, speaking of magic and things that you love. Uh, we're going to be talking about Willow on the podcast next week, the Ron Howard film from the 80s. Wow, yes. nice. This was Hannah's suggestion. We're going to be doing a bunch of fantasy movies, uh, starting with Willow. I'm excited to talk about it. It's very yeah. good. Haven't seen it in a long time. Do you know what other fantasy movies you're watching? I'm just curious. Yeah, uh, Brittany picked The Singing Ringing Tree, which is a 50s German film. Uh-oh. James picked Gretel and Hansel, the atmospheric horror oh, I've from Oskarkin's. Um, it's pretty good. I, I enjoyed it when I saw it in the theaters. theaters. I'll have yeah. to watch it in preparation to listen. And I did some um, slight category fraud. Uh, <laughs> I picked the new anime film Bell, uh, which is an adaptation of Beauty and the Beast, but it's set in a sci-fi virtual reality realm. So uh, <laughs> I, uh, I broke up the format a little bit just because I wanted everyone to talk about a newer kind of like off the beaten path interpretation of fairy tales. So a wide range of stuff. Bye everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.